Welcome, Ecom Logistics Nation. Thank you for joining today's episode. We're on a mission to share e-commerce logistics insights, trends, successes, and challenges from the leaders and innovators in our space. I think there's a massive opportunity for companies to expand from the U.S. into Europe or into Southeast Asia or into, into Middle East, especially if you have a very attractive brand. You don't have to set everything up yourself. So there's a massive network of partners that can do logistics for you. Welcome, Ecom Logistics Nation. This episode, Nanad and I welcome Jort Steins, CEO and founder of Channel Engine, a platform that helps stores, brands, and distributors find millions of new customers by connecting them to marketplaces globally. He's a tech entrepreneur, angel investor with more than 20 years of experience and expertise in B2B, B2C e-commerce, marketplaces, SaaS, and international platform strategies. Doing some social research also discovered that Jord is an avid kite surfer. So for all you adrenaline junkies, we'll put a link in the show notes with a uh, video of Jord catching some serious, <laughs> and I mean serious hang time. That was really cool to see, Jord. Uh, thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Exciting to be talking to you guys. I'm looking forward to it. Same here. We're really looking forward to it. I think then this would be our first multi-carrier or multi-channel guest, right? Where we would be talking about all things, different channels. How do you bring them together? Make it happen. Lots of logistics conversation, but this would be like, where's the order coming from? That's right. Yeah, that's we need right. lots of logistics to do it well on multi-channel. So that's a important connection. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe, maybe that's a good springboard for us, you know, really impressed and fascinated with your background. Um, you know, such great experience in e-commerce product and marketplaces. So would love for you to share, you know, your journey and highlight real and, you know, what was it about that that gave you the vision to, uh, to, to start channel engine? Yeah, sure. So, so my journey actually started about 20 years ago in e-commerce. So I started a concept, uh, company with a concept called Website Lease, which was a fixed monthly fee for a website or a web shop. Now we all call it SaaS, but back then, 2003, <laughs> there was no SaaS. There was just me, a few freelancers uh, in the attic at, a, at home, started growing the company with some smaller retailers, uh, some bigger brands came along, and then we started building some very nice e-commerce environments for LG Mobile and a few other very big ones. Uh, started building integrations with warehouse management systems, ERP systems. Uh, and then with one of my customers, he was running Gadget House, nice e-commerce store. A dinner, a bunch of beers, and that's where the best ideas come from. So we decided to launch a few e-commerce stores together as a sort of a side business. And that side business ran a little bit out of hand. So in the end, we had 75 e-commerce stores running one big backend system. Wow. There was no good system back then. I think there was always commerce or something. So we built everything ourselves, uh, including warehouse management system, automated purchasing system. We built our own warehouses. Uh, so I started with a very small warehouse, expanded to backdoor neighbor and next door neighbor. In the end, we had four warehouses with 30,000 different SKUs in stock in, uh, in the Netherlands. Um, all the web shops were search engine optimized. And then we decided to uh, launch our own marketplace. We helped a few companies, a few comparison sites to become a marketplace. And then we started selling on eBay, on Amazon and some local marketplaces. And for me, it totally didn't make sense that we had to build all these integrations custom made. So we had to connect to these marketplaces, uh, but we had so many products in stock and not all products are applicable to these marketplaces. So 
some brands didn't allow it. Some products weren't applicable to send to Germany or to France, uh, or they were not profitable. So I wanted this control panel. There was nothing around. So what do you do then? You build it. So big team of the, the core people that built these e-commerce platforms earlier are now part of Channel Engine. So we started building Channel Engine. Uh, I sold my previous company, used our own e-commerce store as guinea pig, and then started uh, building out our platform, basically uh, what we needed ourselves. Uh, so that's always the best way to do it, right? What you need yourself, you need to build it and optimize. So uh, that's a little bit of the journey. Um, first idea of Channel Engine was about 10 years ago. A bit too early in the market, especially Western Europe, because a lot of brands didn't see that they were supposed to be selling on marketplace in the future. So I spoke to a lot of them. Many of them said, no, that's a channel conflict. Retailers are doing it. A lot of retailers saw marketplace as competition. And we all know that massively changed. So we first saw the change end of 2018. Back then it was a super small team. I think we were with a core team of five. And then we started expanding, did our first external funding round. Uh, and then we added more marketplaces, more functionalities and scaled up. At the moment, we are with 250 people. We connect more than 700 marketplaces worldwide. Offices in New York, Canada, got multiple offices in Europe, uh, in Dubai, Singapore, and in Melbourne. So we have been scaling quite rapidly. Uh, and we built a massive network of uh, logistic providers around us as well. So uh, excited to be here. Key, key moment, of course. If you want to do this well, you need to uh, have a good logistic flow. So uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. By the way, it sounds like the two examples you just gave, right? One was around building multiple websites, hosting them. It wasn't called SaaS. So it seems like you built a solution similar to Shopify when Shopify was building Shopify, right? Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if I knew back then what I know now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? There was another one as well in there, right? Like when you were talking about marketplace and you were talking about the, the, uh, various cues and connecting and whatnot, right? Like I was listening to a podcast for, uh, how Wayfair was built, right? The fact yeah. that they had hundreds of websites running through the single catalog. That's what the origins of Wayfair happens to be until they consolidated yeah. and called it Wayfair, right? Yeah. And same thing was very similar. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like, yeah, you, and it seems like the same timeline as well. While, you know, all of these things were happening in the U.S., you sit in there in Netherlands doing the same stuff, right? Definitely yeah. different market dynamics. Uh, uh, actually, there's a lot of similarities between us and Wayfair because back then we were uh, we had all these gift stores as well as home and living. So we were selling furniture and, and all kinds of home and living accessories, uh, outdoor gear, barbecues, stuff like that. Uh, and I sold the company to a media publisher that owned all the home and living magazines in, in Western Europe. So it's an exciting time and Lots of similarities between Wafer. So, uh, awesome. You got an exit out of that. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. There you go. Yeah. Beautiful. That funded channel <laughs> engine in the beginning. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jor, with that and and all your experience, would, would love to get your perspective maybe on where we are today, maybe your, your view of the State of the Union. Um, as it relates to, you know, multi-channel from, from both like maybe a North America and then a, a global perspective, you know, we're the, the brands, retailers we work with, it, it feels like there is just this massive push for, for brands to your point where previously 
channel conflict was what you heard all the time, but now uh, such a push for channel expansion and, you know, an international expansion. So we'd just love to, to hear what you're seeing in the market. Yeah, so happy to dive in. So a couple of years ago when I did sessions about online retail, I always asked, do we have brands in the audience or retailers? And it was also very much split. But at the moment, retailers have their own brands. They're becoming marketplaces. Brands are all retailing. They're doing DC. They're selling on marketplace. So I see a lot of disintermediation. So uh, smaller players that used to just buy from a wholesaler or a brand directly selling on their own e-commerce store, then they start selling on marketplaces. That's slowly disappearing because they don't add that much value in the value chain. So they were just putting these products online, asking for product information from the supplier, and then ask them to drop ship it. So you see those uh, smaller players fall away. Larger retailers are doing extremely well. If they Typically, they already have their own e-commerce store, and then they uh, go multi-channel either on a marketplace in the same country or they leverage other countries as well. So you have all kinds of different plays. So we have uh, companies in Canada selling in the US and US selling in Canada, but also in Germany selling to Poland and stuff like that, just to accelerate their revenue, uh, get better purchasing conditions, better logistics. So it's a, it's a very good way to do it. The other thing we've seen over the last few years is brands selling more and more direct to consumer. So typically, if you look at brands, they started selling on their own .com already. Uh, and many of them are vendor to Amazon, uh, like the, the biggest marketplace, or vendor to Walmart. And that is all shifting towards the seller model. Um, why is it shifting? Uh, the majority of the sales on these marketplaces already are going through the marketplace model. But also these platforms are buying less. So they're buying less. Uh, some of the vendor managers are gone. Uh, and you also, as a brand, don't want to be dependent on the purchasing decisions of these marketplaces. As a brand, you want to be in control. What products are sold? Is your assortment complete? Do you have a new product launch? Do you have enough availability instead of just waiting for a purchase order from the from the vendor manager? So that's happening a lot. And I, last few years, I've seen that accelerate uh, majorly because these brands, first of all, marketplaces, just as Amazon and eBay, uh, but now a lot of their resellers a lot of the retailers are all becoming a marketplace. So if you look at the current trend, of course, uh, interest is going up, money is expensive, mm -hmm. everybody's looking at their P&L. So a lot of retailers don't want to have that much stock on their balance sheet. So they're buying less. Uh, smaller assortment, especially not the outliers in the assortment. Um, and then they're all launching a marketplace. Uh, and if you're not ready as a brand, then you're just clearly missing out on revenue if you don't connect to these marketplaces. So there's uh, a lack of awareness uh, for many brands that this, this is happening at a very, very rapid pace. And if you start asking these brands, like, do you get less purchase orders? Yes, we do. Are they pushing you to a marketplace? Yes, they do. Well, and if, if you don't have that route to market there, you're just not ready. Same thing on Amazon. Typically, they're buying less. And if you don't connect to their marketplace, uh, they're just missing out if you don't have to purchase order, you didn't replenish in time. Uh, uh, well, you can just set everything on the marketplace while you do vendor, just get these purchase orders in, enjoy it. But for all the products they don't buy, use the marketplace model. And as soon as you don't get any purchase orders, just switch it on on the marketplace in a hybrid mode. And that will empower you as a company. Yeah, that's extremely interesting, right? We are... 
you know, if you just take Amazon as an example, I would say, and most of the times I have this conversation where I go, Hey, there is, you know, at least seven different ways you could be selling on Amazon, right? Like it's, and they are all unique ways of kind of going at it and four ways to actually do like your fulfillment or logistics part of it when you work with Amazon. And when you combine all of that, you have so many strategies to pick from. From a from a brand perspective, and I think that's where a lot of people just aren't aware. The education, and I know you know companies like yours, you guys put out a lot of blogs and insights and whatnot. But just that general education, because given a brand is rooted in, let's say they started as a Shopify store, or you are a CPG brand that always did retail, right? You are so entrenched in your business that you don't get to see. All you see is just noise when it comes to all of these channels. And how do you go about developing the channel strategy? One of the most interesting areas to me, and it has been for the longest time, right? Like, so uh, this this channel conflict conversation, specifically the large brands, the large CPGs, right? That always for the longest time said, no, I don't want this conflict with the big retail, right? And now all of a sudden, big retail is essentially pushing them to say, no, I want you to publish on my marketplace 1P or 3P, right? Do it as, you know, a third party seller or send me the stuff, but do it dropship retailers or brands are having to evolve at a rapider pace than they had to previously. It's getting super interesting. And from a logistics perspective, it also does get super interesting. How do you build an omni center, right? Like where your, you know, at least retailers have something where they manage inventory at a case level. CPGs, right, are managing palletized loads, right? And it's most of it is pallet in, pallet out operations in their warehouse. And all of a sudden, they got to figure out, how am I doing this Amazon individual yeah. shipping that's a drop shipment, but technically it comes to me as an EDI order? Yeah. The, the yeah, market, it's, yes, it's getting interesting. Yeah. And, and there's so many opportunities there. So a lot of brands are looking at it as a, Limitations, like we're used to sending out pallets. Uh, that's what we do. But typically, there are so many providers doing uh, 3PL logistics for them. Uh, you've got, you can use Amazon fulfillment or Walmart fulfillment or Zalando fulfillment services. And the most powerful thing is if you combine it. So if you use fulfillment by Amazon for your top sellers in combination with your own fulfillment or 3PL that does it. And we can switch around. So as soon as you run out of stock on FBA, we switch to your own fulfillment. If your own one warehouse is out of stock, we switch to the second warehouse. Uh, And the nice thing is some of the brands only use FBA, which is fine because we support multi-channel fulfillment of of Amazon. So you can actually sell on Sears and then have Amazon drop ships it for you. So you don't need to build these capabilities yourself. Uh, so there's a lot of automation in place to, to do that well. And that provides the power to the brand because you decide what to sell, where and why. And it's also important, for instance, if you want to sell, if, you, if you're a retailer and you want to sell on the marketplace and you have some competition, you want to win the buy box. Not everybody will be familiar with the buy box, but the buy box will drive 85% of your traffic. So. Google it, look on, on our website. Uh, there's a lot of information about buy boxes. But typically, if Amazon ships it for you, you have a priority on the buy box. But that's not always the case. Uh, if you go to Prime Day or Black Friday, they change the algorithm. So if you think, well, I'm going to send everything to FBA, and then they change the algorithm and someone else wins the buy box, then you're out of luck. 
because they did just want to offload to the pressure of their FBA. So you need to have your own 3PL or your own fulfillment center. Start shipping from there as well. Uh, make sure you can backfill or size fill uh, different different products. That gives you a lot of opportunities. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there is definitely a difference between a, a general merchandise that there can be N number of sellers versus an exclusive brand that there is only, you are the only seller or you have one or two distributors. You can really control the motions of that from a distribution logistics perspective. But if you are, if, I mean, it goes without saying, like if you got something that's just a licensed product that, you know, there are 17 sellers on Amazon, you got a problem, right? Like, yeah, yeah. FBA is probably or, your best option at that point. Yeah. If you have that, that's yeah. fine. But you need a very high level of automation and purchasing power to be able to be cheap, ship fast. So it's typically the seller performance in combination with the price that determines whether you win the buy box or not. So People can win there and we have an advanced repricer that can make sure you're optimized and win that competition. But if you're a brand, it's, they don't all have the luxury to just be the only seller because they have resellers as well. But keep it to a number of very high quality resellers because even if there's a reseller that has a crappy service, it will reflect on your product. So somebody will write a bad review on your product while it's just a bad customer experience. So be Absolutely. very strategic about who's selling your products where. Absolutely. And and maybe you said go to the website and kind of check it out. But do you mind spending a couple of minutes just explaining to our audience the buy box? Yes, of course. So if you go to Amazon or Walmart and many other marketplaces and you go to a specific product page and you click on buy now, that big box, uh, they determine who the seller is. So if there's 30 companies selling the same product, there's one winning the buy box. So that's and 85% of the sales are going to that buy box. And then you can click on a little link, like who else is selling it. And that's where the competition for the rest of the 15% is. So it's super important to win that buy box. And winning that buy box is based on seller performance. Do you do what you promise? How fast do you ship? Uh, is your customer service on point? All those kind of factors are, are in play in combination with your price. Uh, so that's where it comes in. If you have thousands of products, you need to automatically re reprice to win that buy box and win the competition. Yeah. And I, that's definitely everyone's seen that, or I would say I have, and I think everyone should go check it out. If you haven't on amazon.com and go, there is that link that will show you all the other sellers, right? But that's Amazon. Are other channels following the same kind of trend? Yes. Yeah, most marketplaces have a buy box. Sometimes it, they do clearly show the other sellers. Sometimes they don't even show other sellers. If you look at retailers that are also selling their own inventory, typically they prioritize it for themselves. Uh, to win the buy box, don't show other sellers until they run out of stock. And you see some very good examples. And that's, that's fine for brands as well. So if a retailer buys certain shoes, for instance, they typically don't buy all the sizes. So a brand can size fill the weird sizes and then still you've got a whole size range. It's still available, very good customer experience, but then the reseller doesn't have to keep it in stock. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> I want to go back to um, one more example of the importance of you know 1P and 3P. Uh, and actually this year, over the last 12 months, we've been working with a lot of clients that have been very, very reliant on the 1P model. And 
the risk that they're trying to avoid right now is delays of let's just focus on peak season. So they get a big purchase order. Uh, they ship the product, but the product is waiting and is not received at an Amazon facility timely. So they've actually yeah. missed Q4 revenue goals. They've, they've missed the opportunity um, for those peak transactions. So, so now it's a matter of, you know, the reliance on the PO, but the, the safety net of having a 3P model and infrastructure set up. So should there be some risk on that, they have a contingency plan where they could still push their product uh, up for, for transactions. Is yeah, that I something you're seeing too? Yeah, I think that's one of the most important things to be independent of decisions of a marketplace and also of the capabilities of a marketplace in certain periods of time. I've got a good example. Brabantia is one of our customers and they became a customer just before COVID hit. So they started selling on the marketplace and they, get, they were getting a lot of purchase orders from Amazon. Uh, and then they didn't get purchase orders for some weird colors or specific, specific accessories or uh, spare parts. So they started selling those in the marketplace. And then as soon as COVID hit, Amazon was like, yeah, I'm not going to send any purchase order because the warehouse is full. Uh, so they just switched their whole assortment to, to the marketplace and they made more revenue than ever before <laughs> on Amazon. If they wouldn't have that route to market, they would have missed all that revenue as well. So I always advise, even if you have five products or some spare parts, just get that route to market. So you have the flexibility to just switch it on uh, whenever you want. So if you don't get purchase orders, which will happen, sometimes by mistake or sometimes by a vendor manager leaving or an algorithm change, you are independent and you're in control. Hey, by the way, while we are talking about Amazon, I do have to add this just because it's timely. Amazon just opened up Seller Fulfilled Prime again and published all the requirements for it. I think yeah. it's going to get interesting again. Um, you know, of course, they had started it back in 2015, 16 timeframe, put it on ice for a little bit and you needed some yeah. approvals to get in. But it now seems like it's open. Yeah. They've kind of figured it out. I think it gets super interesting. Don't know about the pricing side of things, but uh, definitely from a planning of your logistics network standpoint, if you can stay prime compliant, that's amazing. Yes, it will drive a lot of revenue. Uh, it's hard for some companies to be compliant, but if you manage to do it, we have multiple warehouses connected that are seller fulfilled, uh, prime eligible uh, also in Europe uh, and, and they're ramping it up. So there are so many choices and tastes to fulfill for marketplaces. So then it's a more strategic choice. Which ones are you using? How much inventory are you going to send there uh, to optimize your sales and optimize your margins? Yeah. And, and it's super critical specifically. I'll say, you know, I know about the U.S. market to distribute that inventory and have it at the right place because that seller fulfilled prime can end up costing you a lot more money if you don't optimize the inventory placement. Yeah, you're yeah. going to get the order. And if you want to meet that SLA, you might be just, if you don't have it in the right place, just using FedEx Air all the time. And I don't think that's what you want to do. So yeah. <laughs> that's good. It's getting increasingly complex. So you need some good automation to do it, but also uh, some experts that help out with the strategy and how to set it up well to, to be super scalable. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and actually, I'm just having flashbacks, and I have a lot of scar tissue from Seller for Gold Prime launched in 2015 and 16. So, um, yeah, tread carefully and, and do your homework. Um, and if you need to talk to someone about it, um, reach out. <laughs> but yeah, there's uh, there were a lot of sleepless nights, weeks, and months um, back uh, back with version one of it. But um, if you nail it, it works well. When you nail it, exactly. it's beautiful. It's absolutely yeah. beautiful and very, very rewarding financially. Um, Want to tap into, um, you know, as you mentioned in your, your intro as well, you know, you've got offices all over the globe. Um, you, you, you have this global perspective. And I think one of the pieces of the puzzle that sometimes missed and would love your perspective on it is like the cultural nuances uh, that come along with, you know, working with different international platforms and, and marketplaces, uh, maybe specifically in the, in the e-commerce segment. So, you know, any advice or thoughts that you could give to a brand or retailer that's looking to expand and, you know, you know, the easy button sometimes for us in North America is going Canada to US or US to Canada. But once you start going over in Asia and Europe, I mean, there's a lot of complexity. So we just love your, your perspective and any advice you could share on that front. Yeah, sure. So I think there's a massive opportunity for companies to expand from the US into Europe or into Southeast Asia or into, into Middle East, uh, especially if you have a very attractive brand uh, and you don't have to set everything up yourself. So there's a massive network of partners that can do logistics for you. There are agencies that can help out uh, partners like us, not just for the technology, but also we, we build a partner ecosystem to help out because we've done this many times before. If you go into Europe, uh, there's lots of different languages, different marketplaces. And Amazon is strong in a few markets. Uh, it's like Spain, Germany, UK, but many of the other markets have their own local hero. So in Poland, it's Allegro. In uh, France, you've got C-Discount and FNAC. In Netherlands, it's Ball.com. And the fun thing is, on these marketplaces, there's a lot of loyal local customers. And there's not, not that much competition. So in especially in the US, on Amazon, you're competing against 600 million products. So you have to put in a lot of advertising money to get that position to start selling well. And we see some companies doing extremely well on the local heroes on the, in the different marketplace because it's easier because they've got 20 million products, but per category it's way less. And you can use a lot of the tactics that you cannot use anymore on Amazon on those different marketplaces. So we see a lot of success there. Um, one thing to keep in mind, if you go to into a new region, be informed super well. Uh, if you don't want to deal with Texas and stuff like that, just get a partner. So if you will go into Europe, for instance, you can use a merchant of record. We've got a few merchant of records that have to sell our accounts for you. Just ramp it up, start learning, and then do it yourself later on. Uh, so lots of opportunities. Uh, the companies are there. They're all connected already and pre-trained. So the route to market is available. Uh, and sometimes it's like, ah, oh, it sounds very complex. Maybe you shouldn't do it. Uh, but definitely consider it test some big markets and then ramp from there. Uh, and we've seen massive successes from different companies. And, you know what, you, you said something 
in terms of there are lots of technique uh, tactics that you know you can't use uh, on Amazon, right? As an example, yeah. But yeah. I gotta I gotta venture a guess. There is a lot of unique things happening in other parts of the world. That do you sit back and say, is there like one or two things? Be like, why are the U.S. market or brands not doing this one thing that's happening in? Europe or Southeast Asia or somewhere, right? Where it's so unique to that market. And it's like, why is the world not adopting this? Or why has it not gone to US as an example? Yeah, I think first of all, to, to connect to the thing I said earlier, a lot of people just look at Amazon. And also in the US, there's so many more marketplaces with way less competition. You don't have to spend that much in advertising budgets to to be present there and to sell well and to get a good ROI. Um, Amazon is very good at uh, spotting some tactics to go up in the rankings. Many other marketplaces don't know yet. So you can leverage those. Uh, happy to do a separate session about how you optimize that. Um, but uh, you can spend a lot of money on, on Amazon just on advertising. And actually, I saw an interesting fact that Amazon is making more money on advertising than that they actually spend on advertising. So those things are, are super wow. interesting. If you look at the international setting, so we went into Southeast Asia. So if you want to sell Southeast Asia, you need marketplaces like Lazada and Shopee. Um, and they do a lot with vouchers. And we underestimate that. So it took us a while to build in these functionalities. Uh, but once they go live, it's massive. So we just launched uh, Software Sunni, which used to be uh, Philips Domestic Appliances in Southeast Asia. And you immediately see the uptick. But they have different sales moments as well they don't have the black friday or or prime day it's just yeah. eight eight nine nine eleven eleven singles day exactly uh, yeah everything is driven by promotions and vouchers so make sure you have some local knowledge get it done but it works extremely well it, it works very similar to marketplaces in uh, in the us but then with discounts of vouchers so right. make sure you have your pricing on point in the beginning and then you can work with these promotion uh, periods. Exactly. You know, one of the other examples that come to my mind is like, yeah, specifically in India, uh, Geo was like a nobody, right? Like a couple of years ago, of course, it's owned by one of the biggest conglomerates and yeah. it just comes out of nowhere and becomes a formidable opponent to the other two big marketplaces, right? That's kind of stuff you don't get to see in the US, right? Like Walmart's been chipping away at Amazon for over a decade at this point, right? Or more yeah. on the marketplace game. You don't just like show up to the stage and go, I'm sure. now the big boy. But that happens quite often in other yeah. parts of the world. Like a marketplace does not exist and the next year it might have like 15, 20% of the market share, right? Like off, off, off yeah. the marketplace game. So. And it will happen more and more. So you yeah. even see apps like uh, Shane and Timu coming into, uh, into the US and massively selling. And that's a marketplace as well. And they're, they're shifting over. Um, TikTok, completely integrated with TikTok. Yeah. It's live in Southeast Asia. It's live in the UK. In Southeast Asia, it's already the third marketplace in GMV yeah. within a year. Uh, so it's, it's massive. And a lot of companies don't realize what's happening, uh, especially with the next generation. Uh, just if you go on TikTok, TikTok made me buy it. <laughs> It's massive. <laughs> a live, live streaming commerce is going to come. Uh, so just test out, be ready. It will come. Uh, and whether it's TikTok or Instagram or any new platform popping up, just, just build these capabilities. Uh, and, and that's, that's the most important part, especially for brands, uh, to be ready with your organization structure as well. 
So typically I see a split between somebody in charge of B2B, somebody in charge of marketplace, somebody in charge of social media, and it's all merging into one. Uh, and yeah. the biggest obstacle I see with a lot of companies that the, that the C-Level board doesn't realize what's happening and then people are wrongly incentivized. So somebody is in charge of B2B and they see D2C as competition internally and slowing everything down. And you want that in one team. So as soon as you don't get the purchase order, start selling on the marketplace in the way you want to be in control as a company. Uh, social media is connected to marketing. If you don't drive traffic, you're not going to sell anything. So marketing should be in there. It's, it's one game. And I see that happening more and more that large companies with regional offices are now growing into global competence centers, uh, getting the right comp partners in to do this at scale super well. And if you do it well, then you see the, the massive results. That's awesome, man. And yeah, yeah, I mean, also you touched on, you know, if you enter in a different market, you got to find like an agency or a, or a merchant of record, right? What about the logistics? Yeah, it helps. What about the logistics, right? Like what, what would be your recommendation to someone specifically US, Canada, trying to enter in Europe, Middle East, Southeast Asia as an example, massive market opportunities. Yeah. What would be your suggestion on that side? Yeah, the suggestion would be to find one or two logistics partners uh, that can do the shipment for you. Uh, for instance, we're based in the Netherlands and Netherlands always has been a nice port into Europe. So there's a lot of logistics routes. And so if you have a fulfillment provider in the Netherlands, you can do uh, next day delivery to Germany, to France, to many countries around. Uh, the only thing is that Bre uh, and the Britain Brexit. decided to Let's Brexit. Bring it up. Yeah. yeah, so you need a separate warehouse in the UK <laughs> to do it well. Yeah. But it's a it it works well. So you can ha you don't have to have a, a warehouse in each different uh, country. Um, typically, some of the logistics providers also have very late cutoff time. So uh, we've got partners that do. Uh, order until 12 at night, uh, uh, until midnight, next wow. day delivery to Germany uh, from the Netherlands. Uh, you see these kind of routes are there. Uh, so amazing opportunity. Uh, and if you want to keep it very easy, just start with FBA, pan yeah. European and, and begin there. So, but we can always ha help out because Amazon isn't the best marketplace, for instance, if you're in fashion, so you need Zalando. If you yep. go into Southeast Asia, it's Alora. So we've got so many different marketplaces where the opportunity is and they can test it out, build muscle, and then scale from there. That's beautiful. And maybe, um, you know, here in, in North America, the US, we, you know, we really focus on you know, seller fulfilled prime, like we just mentioned, but the prime expectation of a two day or one day delivery. Can you share, because I think it's, it's interesting and maybe even a little frightening. Um, when you talk about what the consumer expectations are outside of the U S and we talked about this a little bit on our prep show and, or our prep call. So can you, can you talk about how that consumer behavior, probably a lot of it driven by the pandemic and wanting more faster. So, what, what does that kind of look like outside of North America from a place an order online or on a marketplace and the delivery expectation, which obviously parlays into the type of logistics infrastructure that needs to be built? Yeah, so it's not just a pandemic. Uh, somehow in, in Europe, we've been ahead of the game 
there's no logical reason to do it, but there has been this competition of how, how late can you order and then still deliver the next day. Uh, so even my own company is more than 10 years ago. We had uh, shifts until 11 o'clock at night and then the truck came in and we could still deliver next uh, next day. Uh, so I was, was just ramping up there. So the next day delivery is really standard. Uh, so you need to, need to have that logistics muscle. If you deliver in three, four days, you're not getting the buy box. You have a very unsatisfied customer. The only exception is if you buy large furniture or very expensive stuff. So the, the more expensive it is, the more people make a conscious decision and they are willing to wait. Uh, but if it's a normal product, you want to order it now, get the next day, sometimes even the same day. Uh, so it's important to get that. And it's, imp it's almost impossible to do it yourself. If you're new to it, don't build your own warehouse. Don't start a corner in your own warehouse because you need to scale. You need to, the trucks coming in. Uh, it's, and it's commodity, so it's not the cost. Uh, fulfillment providers can do it way cheaper than you can do yourself until you have a certain volume and then still okay. is it your core business if it's not your core business don't do it just just make sure you have partners to do it i agree <laughs> just gonna add to that if it's not your core business don't do it find a really good partner it doesn't have to be a big name it could be a big name there is a lot of good mom and pops and i think that's relevant everywhere across the world Right. Absolutely. Like find a good partner. Yeah. You have to understand your own network and your own nuances to have the competitive edge, but make the network your competitive edge rather than, yeah. you know, rather than saying, I'm going to run the warehouse. That's not your competitive edge. Control that through yeah. an SLA. That's it. Absolutely. A bunch of Absolutely. KPIs and SLAs will do the trick. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm a big believer in, in partnering up. So doing this at scale needs a, very good ecosystem of partners that, that help you out doing it together. Don't try to do everything yourself. If you're a brand or retailer, you're good at sourcing or designing or producing a product, building a brand, and then yeah. make sure you leverage all the other things that are out there. Beautiful. Going to switch gears here for a second. And obviously want to have this conversation based off of all your experience building platforms and building integrations and solutions. And there's so much going on in the logistics realm, right? As, a, as SaaS and um, new innovative platforms are being built and, you know, coming out of pre-seed and, and seed rounds and, and making some, some good headway in the market. Um, I think there's this, Really, well, let me go back. Your growth has really been fascinating. Uh, the, the kite surfing video I watched of you, uh, uh, a couple of nights ago, I think in that, that was recorded like a year ago and you had 90 employees, I think was mentioned on the video today. You mentioned you're up yeah. to 250, all these offices around the globe. And with that growth and thinking about building product, I think it's really fascinating the, the, the balance between sales driven goals and product centric objectives. Um, in that video as well, just to go back to that, if memory serves me right, you said, listen, always build for the, the future goal. Don't build for a single customer, right? So have that, that holistic view. And I think what's fascinating in some of what we see in the market is there's this, this balance that maybe is right or wrong, but once your perspective where there's some organizations where there might be two or three times the amount of commercial or salespeople as there are 
those that are actually building or enhancing the product. So want to give you the, an open floor. And I know Nanad has a lot to say on this subject too. So we'll just love your, your perspective on, uh, on that. Yes. So my background is in technology. So I love building it and there is so much to automate. And if you automate it well, uh, then you can really help your customers, but also your internal processes. So building product, uh, we've got about uh, 85 people working on the product itself. Um, and that's not just a core technology, but also adding new marketplace worldwide. So actually we have two products. We, we built a huge network that provides access to two brands and retailers. So don't they, they don't have to build it as well as the core technology to manage all these different channels uh, with the control panel. So it's uh, always sounds easy. It's like just one plug to all the APIs, but you need that route to market. You guys have been in e-commerce for a long time. There's a lot of nuances and a lot of edge cases you need to catch, make sure yep. stocks synchronize very well, uh, price optimization, stuff like that. So the core is there also on the innovation because you, it's impossible for a person to manage all these SKUs. We've got customers with a couple of hundred thousand SKUs spread across many channels and then yeah, there's nobody that can look in all these different price on the different channels and optimize manually. So you need technology for that. And then of course you need to have sales, but sales shouldn't be way more than, uh, than technology. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think what ended up happening in the market was definitely this, uh, <clears throat> the VC push and the belief that you could actually just have a whole ton of salespeople with like a 30, 40% turnover rate within that and just like churn and burn and go. And the product focus kind of took a, a, a backseat. And I think what we see, and I, I have to say, right, like you are in an extremely competitive environment because if you just look for the Google search term, right, like multi-carrier engine or something, right, or yeah. multi-channel engine, you're going to step into a lot of companies, right? But you came out as, as I see the market now, it's like two or three or four, the top products that are out in the market. And it's my belief is it's product first focus, right? Like it's developing the capabilities that are necessary and not just, you know, selling the vision and then figuring it out on the back end. No, because that's, that's where things go wrong really yeah. quickly. And, and you see a lot of players in the market, uh, typically feed management solutions that say, oh, we also do marketplace or PIM solutions that say, oh, we also do single syndication. But it's just a, a tiny part of, of what is really needed to do this at scale. Uh, so that's what we're focused on. It's always way more work than you think, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's super important to do it that way. Yeah, it's always way more work than you think. <laughs> Everything is always way always. more work. Yeah. yeah. That's not, not just for our company, for every company, right? <laughs> Dude, I, 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 just as a side note, I want to bring up, I was listening to uh, Freakonomics, one of the top uh, podcasts that is out there right now. Yeah. Um, and I suggest this episode to everyone about why we are so bad at planning, just people in general. And this is not, you might think you are bad, but the fact of the matter is we as humans are just terrible at planning why projects overrun and why we underestimate the amount of time things take. And there is a lot of psychology behind it. And, and yeah, it's like, if you are educated, you could plan for that. Yeah. But anyways, I just wanted yeah. to throw that out there. Yeah. We always largely overestimate what we can do in a day mm -hmm. or a week, but we 
underestimate what we can do in a year or in a few years if you're super consistent and keep on building and building and building. But it is an interesting one because there's so many external factors continuously influencing it, which is almost impossible to model or to forecast or to predict. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's always hard to do. And in a dynamic environment, right? In a dynamic yeah. environment, your roadmap specifically might be saying, I'm going to go build to these five channels over the next one month. All of a sudden, something big pops up in the market or a new customer that's basically saying, yeah, this obscure channel, but it represents 80% of my volume. Now your roadmap's got to be thrown into a toilet, right? Like it's, it's, yeah. It, yeah. 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 It's always hard to predict. I had this discussion with someone that said, well, yeah, but your, your PL is off by 3%. It's like, well, that's amazing. And yeah. I said, no, no, we, we have to be better at it. It's like, well, how, how long are you going to take to drive home? It's like, yeah, 45, 45 minutes to an hour. It's like, well, that's a big gap between 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> yeah. There can be traffic. It's like, well, you drive it every day. So you should be way better at predicting. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, to get your point. I never had any discussions with him anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like you should be able to predict it. Yeah. yeah. I can predict my traffic, but not the, the, the guy in front of me that was texting on his cell phone and basically decided to hit oh, the wall on yeah. the side. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jordan, it has been really, really fun having you on the podcast and, and thank you once again for joining us. Um, wanted to see if you could share with the audience where they could learn more about Channel Engine and what social platforms uh, they could find you and, and follow you. Yeah, awesome. So uh, channelengine.com up there that's the best uh, best source uh, we also share a lot of information on linkedin so go to linkedin uh, find our company uh, also feel free to connect to me as well uh, i share a lot of information on marketplaces on e-commerce uh, so happy to connect uh, we're also on twitter and on facebook that's more for the employer with the fun stuff we do uh, uh, behind uh, but uh, always feel free to connect shoot us a message and uh, happy to help and thanks a lot for having me on the on the podcast. Oh, thank you. This is this was very educational. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Hi, I'm Ninada Charya, CEO and co-founder of Fulfillment IQ. And I'm here with Dan Call, CRO and partner at Fulfillment IQ. We're the team behind the Ecom Logistics Podcast. Our mission is to provide you with genuine insights from our work alongside logistics leaders to help you improve your supply chain. In the Ecom Logistics Podcast, we share the knowledge and the insights we've gained from working alongside amazing brands, retailers, 3PLs, and VCs, so you can make the most out of your supply chain journey. If you like what you're hearing, we'd truly appreciate your support with a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting channel. Your feedback not only keeps us going, but also helps others find the podcast. If you think Fulfillment IQ can assist you, or if you have an idea related to logistics, just reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm always up for a chat and ready to explore new possibilities together. Stay tuned to the Ecom Logistics Podcast on your favorite podcast platform for fresh and practical insights into e-commerce and logistics. Until next time, let's keep making a difference in logistics together.